Psalm 92. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery and upon the harp with a harmonious sound. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are so very deep. A senseless man does not know, neither does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn, you have exalted like a wild ox. You have been anointed with, I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked, who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall flourish and, and they shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name this day. May this people here that have gathered together this morning render praise to you and exalt your name as we worship together through the reading and studying of your word. We give you thanks, Father, for making us glad through your perfect work of salvation. The joy and the love and the peace, any of the fruit that we see in the scripture comes from the spirit. Oh, Father, it's all of you, and we acknowledge this day that it all comes from you. It's truly good to give thanks to you, Lord. Father, just now I ask that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears that we might hear the truth that you have for us today in your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our rock and in whom no unrighteousness is found. Amen. I'd like to turn your attention as we begin to the New Testament, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, begin reading in verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, that's Jesus, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, 
they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Here we have in this account in Luke's gospel, ten lepers crying out for mercy. Ten healed as they made their way to the priests. But only one considers it worthwhile to glorify God at the feet of Jesus. The one who heard the lepers cry for mercy awaits the other nine. And you might think this text has little to do with you. After all, you're not a leper. Maybe you're thinking that. I mean, you, you like the idea that the man, the one who returned to Jesus to give him thanks, but I wonder whether these words have affected you. You see, the church, of, of all the people living on this earth, ought to be the most thankful people around. We ought to be. We have much to be thankful for. And it's my prayer over these next three Sundays that the Lord would cultivate a spirit of thankfulness in each one of his children here. Looking solely at the statistics from this account in Luke's gospel, you see that one out of ten returned to give thanks. I'm not a big math person, but I believe that's 10%. 10%. I wonder, I wonder what God thinks when in his local assembly, let's just take hope in Christ. He pours out the riches of his blessings and only 10% render thanks to him. You see, Luke's account speaks of 10 lepers, but the main point is not about the lepers. It's about this, church. It's about a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for what one receives from the hand of God. Church, tell me, what have you received that has not come from the hand of God? We just sang, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Do you believe that? If all that you have received has come from God, why then is there so little thankfulness to God in your life? When that one leper returned, I want you to notice the first response of Jesus. Notice what he says. First, he says, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? He wasn't pushing aside the one who had returned to give thanks. Instead, he's making an assumption which I believe is embedded in the questions. Here's one. Ten were healed. There's supposed to be nine more alongside this man. Church, one of the applications from the text, and one I believe that serves as a segue into these psalms of thanksgiving we'll be looking at here these next three weeks, it's this. Thanksgiving to God 
is a worshipful response to what you have received from the hand of God. Thanksgiving to God is a worshipful response to what you've received from the hand of God. Perhaps it'd be helpful just right now to jot down, and you'll have some time over these next few weeks, hopefully, to do more of this, but maybe jot down one or two things right now. What are a couple things that lately you've received from the hand of God? Give thanks. Think of it. If you have something that comes to mind, write it down. Give him thanks for that very thing. And as you're doing that, turn your attention as well to the text in Psalm 92. I read the first three verses. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. We need to understand this psalm is, is designed, designated as a, if you see it at the beginning there, there's a little note, a song for the Sabbath day. It's set aside for the day of rest as a psalm of worship. I want you to notice the big idea expressed right there in verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Now, you take that statement out into the marketplace of ideas, and you'll find not everyone adheres to that statement, that it's good to give thanks to the Lord. You see, not everyone recognizes the Lord as the authority over all men. Not everyone knows God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Not everyone has the teacher of the Holy Spirit residing within them, guiding them into all truth. You might get some, you might get some buy-in from some folks. You might get some to agree in principle with the idea that it's good to give thanks to the Lord. As long as they themselves don't have to walk and live that way. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. If giving thanks is a worshipful response to what you have received from the hand of God, then it makes sense, if we just think about it for a moment, it makes sense that the natural man would pause, would hesitate, even on occasion bristle at the thought of giving thanks to God. The Bible says that the fleshly or carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 7 and 8. We see in Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So just as there are two kinds of people, we have natural man, we have spiritual man. I believe it could also be said, in light of our text today, that we have thankful people and we have unthankful people. It's good to give thanks to God. Thankful people, unthankful people. Which one are you? You might be thinking or asking, how does this thanksgiving to God get expressed? Well, how have we done it thus far this morning? Give a little sampling of how it's to be expressed by what we've already participated in this morning. At the end of verse 1, to sing praises to your name. Almost high. You know, I hear I was drawn to a text that we had looked at when we were doing an afternoon teaching on singing, our worship and song. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 to 20. 
Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with what? Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, here it is. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. But then it says, giving thanks always for all things. Let me say that again. Giving thanks always for all things. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just as your singing is an expression of one filled with the Holy Spirit, so it is also true that your giving thanks to God is characteristic of one filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? I want you to be able to see that this morning. Singing and giving thanks are characteristic of one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Psalm 92, verse 1, then, is grounded in what spirit-filled people do. Grounded in who these spirit people, spirit, Holy Spirit-filled people are. Their being, who they are. Their makeup. Spirit-filled people are people who give thanks to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled people are people who sing praises to the Most High God. And so Psalm 92 verse 1 correctly identifies your role. Give thanks and sing praises. And at the same time identifies the God to whom we give thanks and sing. It is good to do these things, church. For one filled with the Holy Spirit, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to his name. Amen? It's good to do that. I think some of us this morning need a little wake-up call to that. It's good to do these things. And we can come in here and we can sit in a chair and we could give intellectual assent to that and nod our head and say yes, but it's different to actually live this, exercise our faith in this, and to acknowledge his goodness in our life by how we live our lives. You look at verse 2, continues from verse 1. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. Here's a practical application here of the, of the text. When you rise up out of bed in the morning, remember to give God thanks by declaring his loving kindness, his mercy toward you. For watching over you while you slept. For watching over, taking care of everything while you slumbered. You know, the Bible says he never sleeps. He never slumbers. Praise God, he doesn't. He's always awake. He's always alert. He always sees what's going on. Even while we're sleeping, he's taking care of things. The morning is a great time, church, to offer thanks. Now, I would ask even this morning, have you taken time yet this morning to thank him for his loving kindness shown toward you? Just as a a practical matter of of exercising your spirit of, of gratefulness and gratitude, thanksgiving to God, make it a habit when you get up in the morning, maybe even before you put your feet on the ground. It's thank you, God. For another day. Thank you for another opportunity today. Thank you for watching over me while I slept last night. Spirit of gratitude. But the evening as well, the psalmist declares God's faithfulness every night. 
You climb into bed at night without thanking God for his faithfulness toward you? God is faithful, church. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. Faithful to take care of you throughout the day. Do you regularly give him thanks at night for his faithfulness? 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. That's who he is. He's faithful. He's a faithful God. Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The psalmist, it seems, is accustomed, and if you read through the psalms in general, you see these are songs that they sang regularly in God's house. Music, instruments, worship. The psalmist here, no doubt, is accustomed to giving thanks instrumentally. Now, some of you in here, like myself, are not inclined instrumentally, perhaps. Others of you are. Praise God that you are. We need you. The church of Jesus Christ needs you. This is a good thing. This is an opportunity not only for you as an individual to worship the Lord, but it is also helpful to the body as a whole. And here we see in verse 3, on an instrument of ten strings. I would like to have seen that instrument. On the lute, the psaltery, on the harp, with harmonious sound. On an instrument and with harmonious sound. Giving thanks to God, singing praises to the Most High God. You know what? It, it demands great attention. I was, I was thinking about this verse 3, and I was drawn to Psalm 33 and 3 through 5. In Psalm 33, 3 through 5, it says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Why? For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So we sing, we lift up our voices, we play skillfully, we do it well, not for ourselves, but because of his goodness, because he's worthy of our praise. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Verse 4 says, for you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. You see, church, your worship is a response to God's initiative. It's a response to God's initiative. You have made me glad through your work. What work? Well, we could think of probably a lot of different things. Work of creation, work of grace, work of mercy, work of salvation. The psalmist says, I will triumph. In other words, I will cry out. I will rejoice in the works of your hands. The psalmist, the psalmist here may be on to something. I believe he is. He may be putting his finger on a problem that exists in the church today and perhaps here at Hope in Christ. Little recognition of God and his work. Little recognition on your end to cry out, to rejoice, to give thanks, to sing into his name. 
Little recognition of worshiping God. Little recognition of thanks to God. There's a connection here between an awareness of God and his work and one responding with worship. Thankful people have a worshipful response to God's work in their lives. All praise to him who reigns above in majesty supreme. That speaks of God's character, his nature, who he is who gave his son for man to die that he might man redeem. That speaks of his wonderful work, does it not? What then is our response? Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the response. Do you see, church, when we sing these hymns of faith, there are weaved in many of these hymns. God's character. God's nature. God's work, man's response to God's work. Next time we sing, I want to encourage you to think about that pattern. Look for that pattern as we sing. And rejoice and triumph in the works of his hands. Sing, for he is good. And it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Look at verse 5. Oh, Lord, how great are your works. It's almost like he, this continuation here. He, he talked about his works. He triumphed in the works of your hands. And, oh, how great are your works. And your thoughts, Lord, your thoughts are very deep. It reminded me of Isaiah. About his thoughts and my thoughts. There's a big difference between his thoughts and my thoughts oftentimes. His are higher. His are greater than mine. I might think I have a good plan But God who sees all things and sees how all things fit together may have a different thought. Oh, that I would submit my will and that we as a body would submit our will to the Father's will. The psalmist meditates on God's works and his thoughts, his works and his thoughts. You know, as wonderful as God and his works are, he he quickly establishes In Psalm 92, he quickly establishes that not everyone shares the same idea about his God. And so it is today. And herein lies part of the challenge before you. Worshipful hearts think much of God. God is on their mind regularly throughout the day. How to please God is central. Walking the pilgrim way. We talked about that last week. Pilgrims and strangers. Walking that way implies that you are holding out for something better yet to come. A heavenly city lies before you. So friends, do not allow the senseless man, do not allow the fool to distract you from the heavenly city. Proverbs 21, 16 says, A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Psalm 92, verse 6 says that a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. You see, the the psalmist says the fool has said in his heart, Psalm 53. What's the fool said in his heart? You remember? There is no God. There are many fools 
among us today, church. They're corrupt and have done abominable iniquity, Psalm 53, verse 1 says. The psalmist in Psalm 54, verse 3, writes, he says, For strangers and have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. Listen to what he says. They have not set God before them. Those who are desiring to change today what it means to be a man and a wife, a husband and a wife, they've not set God before them. For if they had, they would know the truth of God's word and understand that it speaks very clearly on one man, one woman, together for life. Man and a woman, God brought that institution together. Those who are living for this world, those who are glued to the things and the gadgets in this world, they've not set God before them. If they had, they would see that this world is not their home, that God has something better in store for them. They would see that this world is passing away in the lusts thereof. 1 John chapter 2. Church, you need not look far to see that there are many who have not set God before them. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. They are ignorant. Listen, they're ignorant not only of who God is, but they are ignorant of their own destiny. Look at verse 7. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. The senseless man, the fool, does not understand these things. Living for the moment, they think little or none about the time yet to come. See, Psalm 92 is a psalm of of thanksgiving. Praise be to God that we serve a righteous judge. Now, a lot of times we don't like to talk about God as a judge. And one of the reasons maybe we don't like to talk about that is because it might be offensive to somebody else. Church, God's word speaks very clearly. He is a judge, a righteous judge. And he's declaring, he's going to be declaring one day judgment in righteousness. And that's going to come by way of his son, Jesus Christ. We need not be ashamed to speak of God as our judge. We speak the truth of the word. There's coming a day when this is going to occur. Paul said in in Acts 17. God is going to judge this world according to, what's the standard going to be? Righteousness. And who's going to be the one delivering this judgment? It's going to be his son, Jesus Christ. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's Acts 17.31. So let's understand something here. Things may not look so good around us. The wicked, the perverse, those who have very clear agendas of trying to nullify God, trying to shut out his word and silence the voice of the Christ follower. These workers of iniquity are flourishing today. They are in high quantity. Would you agree with that? They're all around. But the truth of the word here is that when the workers of iniquity flourish... It is that they may be destroyed forever. Psalm 94, 20, 23. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you, God? 
They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. And so living as strangers and pilgrims will serve as a catalyst for the hope of what's to come for those who bear the name of Jesus. An awareness of who is overseeing all things. Church, that provides such great comfort. Psalm 92, verse 8. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. He's already said at the end of verse 1, we sing praises to your name, O Most High. And here, verse 8, you, Lord, are on high. You are... Not only the most high God, but you reign in the highest place on the scale of being. That's essentially what the idea is there. You see, the senseless man does not know, nor does the fool understand. But the Lord is on high forevermore. Has been, is, will be. Look at verse 9. For behold, look... Take note of your enemies, O Lord. Now, the psalmist isn't necessarily addressing God himself here as though he needs a wake-up call. God doesn't need a wake-up call. Who needs the wake-up call? We need the wake-up call. So the behold is for you and me. Behold. (laughs) Behold your enemies, O Lord. Behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. So while things might not appear to look good, wickedness and evil may seem to be getting ahead. The truth of the scriptures is that all workers of iniquity, those who stand in opposition to God, will perish. They will be destroyed forever. And we can give God thanks for his righteous judgment. He will one day make right all things. His judgment is just. He will give to every man, the Bible says, according to his works. Those who proudly assert themselves against God, thinking of Psalm 53, the fool, shall perish. They will be forever separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. That is a reality. This is sobering news, but yet it's also cause for thanksgiving. Do you know this righteous judge, church? Do you know him? I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that there is a day when every single one is going to be held accountable to this judge, this righteous judge. And the standard and the gauge is going to be the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's going to come down to, what have you done with Jesus? Psalm 94, 14 says that the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. You know, you might be wondering today, as the psalmist did in Psalm 94, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Listen to what the psalmist says. Unless the Lord had been my help, 
Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have soon settled in silence. In the multitude of my anxieties within me. There are some of you here today have multitude of anxieties within you. Listen to what the psalmist says. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. The Psalms, church, are reminders that God is your steadfast source of help. They remind you and point you to the only source of help for the soul. Men will fail you. How many of you experienced that? Men failing you. It happens. But in God, you can trust. It's interesting that we use that slogan. Some of our money. But operationally, we fail to live that out on many occasions, don't we? Do you trust him? Look at Psalm 92, 10 and 11. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. Psalmist recognizes God's judgment toward the workers of iniquity, but he also declares God's goodness in his own life. He's able to see what God is doing in his own life as well. In the midst of all of this other stuff going on. My horn or my strength you have exalted. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye has seen, ears have heard. See, the descriptions that we have there in verse 10 speak to strength. My horn, my strength you have exalted. Been anointed with fresh oil. This idea of refreshment, covering. So we have the descriptions in verse 10, that of strength, that of refreshment. I was reminded of the account of David when he is at the home of Jesse. In Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, Samuel took that horn of oil. You remember that? And he anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Little David, young David, anointed in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. See, there was a covering attached to that time. David was covered. Spirit of the Lord. Psalm 23, verse 5. You anoint my head with oil, the psalmist says. My cup runs over. The Lord is my shepherd and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalmist has been enabled to see and hear the status of his enemies, those who rise up against him, and those workers of iniquity that have already been accounted for in the text. Why would that be such a big deal? Why is that a big deal? I believe this. I believe God is giving him a glimpse of what is yet to come for those workers of iniquity. God is protecting him and at the same time showing him his faithfulness. These words are not simply good ideas for the future, but God has seen fit to show himself to the psalmist in the present. God is still a God who speaks. 
God is still a God who is at work. This is not a God of some 2,000 years ago. Yes, we read about the things that he did a long time ago, but this God we speak of in the Word is a living God. And we need reminders that he's still alive. What's going to be one of the best ways to be mindful of that? What has he done that ought to spur and exercise faith, walking, living it out? People today need to see that we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Is he in the world today? You look around and sometimes I wonder. I wonder in particular, those who are church folks, those who are followers of Jesus, is it evident? God has seen fit to show himself to the psalmist in the present, casting down the wicked, giving the psalmist a confident assurance of his word. He not only will cut out the wicked, but he is doing so. And this too is a cause for praise and thanksgiving. How has God been showing forth the truth of his word in your life? In seeing the demise of God's enemies all around you, what is your response? I'd like to suggest two appropriate responses here. First, thanksgiving for acting in a faithful manner. His word has spoken and he is operating in accordance to his word. This is a God we can trust. We can trust him. But secondly, I believe an appropriate response to this is this provides for us an an impetus to share this gospel that we've been talking about. You see, seeing and hearing of those being cut off from the Lord ought to trigger a greater motivation, a greater urgency to get his word out. Let me ask this morning, does mention of the senseless man, this fool, that they shall be destroyed forever, does it create a they deserve it mentality? Or does it spur you on to speak for Christ? Does it cause you to consider your own testimony? Does it awaken you to those who so desperately need to hear the truth of God's word? If we see the truth of God's word is that the workers, all workers of iniquity are going to perish. That ought to not be, that ought not be then followers of Jesus Christ going, yeah, they're going to get theirs. You just wait and see. They're going to get theirs. Is that our mentality? See, understanding this truth ought to spur us on with a heart for the lost. Christ himself had that heart, didn't he? Lost people mattered to him. And lost people ought to matter to us as well. Turn your attention for just a moment to the end of the psalm. I find great encouragement here in these last few verses. In contrast to the workers of iniquity who flourish, the psalmist speaks of the righteous who flourish. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I have to admit, I was sort of ignorant about a palm tree and a cedar in Lebanon. Some of you in here probably had a little bit more insight into that than I did as I was reading the text this week. 
I, I was doing some study and I was looking at some pictures and just getting a feel for this, these palm trees and cedars in Lebanon. And I came across something that I've, I found very helpful, something that, that was, was good to, to kind of see here in terms of the righteous flourishing like, growing like. In what way? Just some handles from a, I believe, a helpful article. A man who, who, who actually came across this verse, and, and he, in his own study, he was curious to find out, and he did his own study on palm tree and cedar in Lebanon. I just share just a few handles, a few bullets that I believe would be helpful here as we think about the righteous flourishing and growing. First of all, the palm tree, recognizing that it's a peculiar tree. It it somewhat resembles a a telegraph pole with a little tuft of green at the top. There's nothing about a palm tree to invite respect or admiration. Just so it is with respect to the saint, the righteous, the Lord, denominates these as a peculiar people, 1 Peter chapter 2. And there is about them nothing that would command the respect or admiration of the average individual. So it's a peculiar tree. But it's also that the palm that casts the least shadow of all the forestry trees, the palm casts the least shadow. It does not interfere with the growth of its neighbor by hindering the rain and sunshine. So likewise, the Lord's people, the righteous, that's who we're speaking of in the text, the righteous, do not slow the growth and prosperity of other fellow beings by preventing the reign of truth and the glorious sunlight of God from falling upon them. They do all they can to assist others who are entitled to a share of these blessings as well. We see also the palm tree has the fewest roots. I found this interesting. Has the least hold upon the earth. It has a main taproot like a carrot extending straight down into the earth with minute rootlets just sufficient to maintain its upright position. All the nourishment it derives is used in its upward building and not in securing an earthly hold. And so it is with the righteous. They are in the world but not of the world. All the vitality derived out of the world is employed for their uplift and spiritual welfare. They are not concerned in the securing of earthly rights and privileges. They too have the last possible hold upon earth and its affairs. They rather are seeking to lay up treasure in heaven. And then we turn our attention to the cedar. Growing like a cedar in Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon grow on the mountain, church. They grow on the mountain. Syrian range of mountains, some 6,500 to 8,000 feet above the level of the Mediterranean Sea. And they're not found on the lowlands. By reason of this high position on the mountain, these trees, the cedars, they very naturally encounter the worst winds. Than the trees that grow in the lowlands. Yet they are not uprooted. Why? Their roots penetrate deep into the rocks. And again, as we think about the righteous, the righteous are securely anchored to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. They cannot be moved by any of the fierce winds that swirl about. They are sure and steadfast, ever abounding in the work of the Lord, established 
on the sure foundation. We see that the Lebanon trees are stout of trunk. And they make excellent building material. In fact, Solomon's temple was built from cedar. The saints of God are staunch. They're stout-hearted, able to resist the fierce winds which uproot those not well established in the truth of God's word. Even as the Lebanon trees in their stoutness are not bent from their upright position by the winds that sweep fiercely over the mountain crests in times of tempest and times of storm. These Lebanon cedars are always green. So are the palms, by the way. Evergreen. Isn't it interesting that the description of the righteous is that of an evergreen? Always showing life. Always showing vitality in appearance. The righteous are to show the same life and vitality, which comes as they're connected to the vine of Christ. And then finally, the cedars of Lebanon. This was an interesting learning point. The cedars of Lebanon, they entwine their branches. If you see groups of these trees together, you'll notice and see pictures of their entwining of their branches. You cut down one of two trees that for years have grown side by side. The remaining tree is somewhat of a sorry-looking spectacle with its branches all on the one side. A lopsided tree is what it becomes. But when you view and do that, attempt to do that with the Lebanon cedar, the limbs of one grow right into the foliage of the neighbor tree. They have an affinity for each other. So likewise God's righteous ones. You find them in loving entwinement. This is a beautiful picture, church. There is no shrinking away from one another, but a decided drawing together. Growing like a cedar in Lebanon. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Take note, will you, of the terms that are used in these final four verses. Flourish, grow, planted, flourish, bear fruit, fresh, flourishing. There's a common word that's repeated three times there, at least in the New King James. Flourish, flourishing. Church, this describes the righteous one, the saint, the follower of Jesus. Does this describe you? Verse 13 speaks of those who are planted in the house of the Lord. The psalmist had an affinity for the house of the Lord and so should the righteous. Parents, the house of the Lord is not simply a place to go on Sunday morning when I read this psalm. I don't see the house of the Lord used generically as it oftentimes is today. Go to church. Right? You've heard that. Go to church. There is supposed to be a planting in the house of the Lord. The word here is that those who are planted in the Lord's house shall flourish in the courts of our God. Parents, plant your children in the Lord's house.
Plant them in the things of God. Do you desire to see them flourish in the Lord? Nurture them in the house of the Lord. Nurture them in the things of God. Psalm 92, 14 and 15. says, They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright or just and righteous. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. The righteous, those who are planted in the house of the Lord. These shall still bear fruit in old age. Fresh and flourishing describe these folks. You know, I was thinking, I was drawn to, to my grandmother. My grandmother is upwards of, upwards of 90 years old now. And I enjoy my conversations with her. She talks much of her love for the Lord. She is one that, that is, is so easy and it's, and it's great to be able to sit down with her because the conversations generally just naturally navigate toward things of the Lord. It's a joy to have a conversation with her. It's not a burden. It's not something that you have to try and figure up. How can we get this conversation steered toward things of the Lord? No, it it usually goes there. There's a joy of the Lord in her for which I'm grateful. She talks much of her love for the Lord, her trust in Jesus. She's planted in her local assembly, serving the Lord, ministering to others. She's in fellowship. She meets regularly, get this, she meets regularly, at least last I've heard, with a a friend of hers who is over 100 years of age. Praise the Lord! You know, there's a word that has been circulating, this word that we call retirement. It's a buzzword for many older people. Today, perhaps even some younger people who are looking forward to that time. Dreams of moving to Florida, dreams of traveling the world, dreams of building up this nest of money to live on, and thinking of days of ease at the beach. And, oh. Is retirement in this manner? Biblical church? The word itself, is it biblical? Retirement. Think about it. Retire. I'm just going to, I'm done. I put my time in, I'm done. And yet I ask the question, how many of us in the church, in the local assembly, in the Lord's house, have said some of those very same words? When it comes time for some kind of service, some kind of activity, some kind of ministry, we've said, and maybe not verbally to someone, but we've thought it, I already did mine. I still remember the conversation. It's been years ago. And it was a time when I was, I was actually, I was in youth ministry at the time. And I remember there were workers needed in the nursery area. I remember this. This stands out very clearly. And there was an older lady who said, I put my time in there. 
I put my time in there. See, that retirement mentality seeps into the local assembly. I'm afraid. Church, take up its word and look. I don't see it. If you see it, come see me. But I don't see that mentality in God's word. I see a life of endurance, a life of perseverance, a life that goes to the end. He who has endured to the end shall be what, says Jesus? Saved. Is there a time when we can just push pause and go over here and lay on the beach for the rest of our life? No. Stop living for that dream. If that's what you're living for, stop. Unplug from it. It's not biblical truth. There's a connection, church, between 14 and 15. Bearing fruit in old age, fresh and flourishing. For what purpose? What's the motive for still bearing fruit? For enduring in the things of the Lord? It's this. To declare that the Lord is upright. We keep on going. We keep pursuing. We keep walking by faith so that we might declare that the Lord is upright. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. You know how encouraging it is to me when I see an older person who is walking faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be that person. When I get to be 90 plus years of age, Lord willing, I get to live that long. I want to be that encouragement to some other young person. And you don't have to go to Florida to live out your remaining days. so that we can declare that the Lord is upright. He's righteous. He's just. In fact, 1 John 2, 28 and 29. This is a, a preface to that. Habitual sinful living, as we spoke of with this retirement idea, it has no place in the life of the righteous. And we see 1 John 2, 28 and 29 speaking. Now little children, John says, abide in him, that's Christ, that when he appears... There's an assumption he's coming back. He's returning. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Let me ask this question. You're out on the beach in Florida. You're taking it easy. You're in retirement mode. Christ comes back. What's he going to think? Oh, you know what? You deserved it. Boy, you, you, just, you deserved it. No, he's not going to say that. He's gonna be, it's going to be a shame, a shameful thing. John's writing right here that you may have confidence not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Church, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's good to sing praises to his name. We see in this psalm that he is a faithful God. We see that he is sovereignly orchestrating in control of all things. We see him extending his loving kindness, his mercy. We see his work of salvation and the various works of his hand which are evident. You woke up this morning and walked out your door and you saw a beautiful sky. He painted that sky for you this morning. To be able not only just to go, wow, great day, nice day, but to be able to give praise and glory for the one who gave the nice day. He's a righteous judge who presides over all his creation. And he pours out his goodness toward his people, the righteous. And he enables the righteous to flourish, to grow, and to bear fruit. Is it your testimony to declare that he is righteous? Are you practicing righteousness? Is he your rock? That's how he closes. He, is, he personalizes this. He's my rock. And in him there is no unrighteousness. Is he your rock? Is he your hope? 
the only hope of your eternal salvation? Help for this life and the life yet to come in eternity? The Lord reigns. Church, I would want you to see this morning that it is good to praise the Lord. It's good to give thanks to Him. And many of the things that the psalmist talks about here in these verses give us motivation, give us cause for all that we have to give thanks for. He's done so much. This psalm does not exhaust all that He's done. But it does give us a good picture of some reasons, some things that he has done, his wonderful works. And that we are to acknowledge those things by thanksgiving, by giving to him. Remember, thanksgiving to God is a worshipful response to God for all that we've received, all that we've been given from the hand of God. He's given so much. So how do we handle that? How are we going to pursue our remaining days? How are we going to steward them? I pray not in the mindset and mode of retirement, but in practicing righteousness. Spending our days giving thanks to God for his goodness. Let's do that together as a church and give him glory in the process. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, which is such an important word in light of where we find ourselves today in this world. In light of all the workers of iniquity surrounding us, promoting their agendas, desiring to push aside Lay asunder the things of God. Oh, Father, where is the voice of the follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, Father, I pray we would be encouraged by your word today to live a life of thankfulness, to see that a heart of thankfulness is connected to a heart of worship, to be able to see that all of the things around us that have been given to us by you that we ought to be able to respond. We, we ought to be ongoing responders to all your goodness. Pointing out to others, wherever we may be, what a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. We thank you, Lord, that you are our rock. We thank you, Lord, that you are a firm anchor. Mighty fortress is our God. We're reminded of that in song that you never fail. Thank you for your great faithfulness toward your people. And Father, I pray that in the days ahead we would walk in light of the truth that you've given to us in your word, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, make no provision for the flesh. The Bible says that we cannot please you by walking in the flesh. And it's our desire to please you. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.